what the heck is branding strategy and who needs it anyway? Well, it turns out everyone and every organization, that's who needs it. Branding strategy helps to determine what you do, how you act, and what you accomplish. Without branding strategy, you risk just wandering around hoping things work out. With good brand strategy, you can work miracles. Today's guest, Peter Wilkin, is just such a miracle worker. He's an internationally recognized branding and advertising expert. Peter has run agencies for such big-name entities as Ogilvy, Leo Burnett, and BBDO, working in places such as London, Singapore, Manila, and Kuala Lumpur. He's also the author of Dim Sum Strategy, a terrific book, and the founder of the newly launched Lighthouse Brand Strategy Academy, which seeks to democratize brand strategy and to coach chief brand officers. So how is brand strategy relevant to nonprofits? What is a brand DNA? And what's the best use of artificial intelligence in developing your branding? Peter joins us today to discuss those and other items on this episode of That's What C Said. Welcome to the podcast that lightens the tension when things sort of get hard. That's what C said, the counterintuitive podcast featuring interviews with leaders and doers who have helped to make our world a better place through their actions and especially through marketing, communications, and embracing change. Here's our host, Lee Walkner. Peter, it's nice to have you with us today. I, I have to say again um, how smitten I was with everything you were talking about when I met you a year and a half ago at a conference in Florida and then um, bought your book and then actually read your book and festooned it with 15 tape flags that I still refer to on a weekly basis. So well, thanks for being here. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and it really is my privilege and um, that's wonderful to hear you got something out of the book. And as you know, when we met, there was an instant kind of connection of like minds and some of the ways in which we thought. And I think, um, you know, I, I felt a bit of a cheat being a keynote speaker because I learned as much from you as you definitely took out from me. Uh, well, you you did a funny thing. Um, you did an on-screen test of uh, brain thinking, types of thinking or something. And as yeah. I recall, you and I were the only two in one color quadrant out of the 25 people present. <laughs> That's right. We were in the far right conceptual creative thinkers, um, challenges of conventional wisdom, holistic thinkers, um, the, the conceptualizers corner. That's right. So that's how we really connected. So so when you say, and, and by the way, I'm taking that as just flattery, because that's exactly where I want to be. Um, and it's also why I need other people who are far better at systems and processes and, and all of those necessary things. So that quadrant that you and I are in um, is really attached to things like creativity and meaning. And to a great degree, I think we could say that that's brand strategy, correct? It's definitely in that quadrant. And if you um, you were going you were gonna ask, you know, what is brand strategy? Mm -hmm. It is it is a lot to do with that, you know, stretching thought but putting order in onto into your business. Um, you know, I'm often asked what brand strategy is, how you would define it, and it's it's literally that combination of two words: brand, which is this desired perception in your mind. A brand is a perception, no more than that. It doesn't exist physically. It's what you want to stand for in your most valuable customers' minds. It's a territory in the mind. And strategy, which in its most simple form is choice. 
So brand strategy is basically the choices that you make to create that desired territory in the mind or that desired perception. Yeah. So, so let, let me ask you an intentionally blindingly naive question. Um, uh, okay, so why is that important? Well, it's hugely important, um, you know, for two, two levels. I, I mean, th another way in which I explain brand strategy is that it's both a map and a compass. And so it sets a direction, if you like, a course to follow, and it gives you a plan of action with goals and priorities to use limited resources to achieve your vision. So your map, if you like. Um, <clears throat> but most importantly, also, it's a compass. So it identifies those associations that you want to build in the hearts and minds of your most valuable customers to attract and retain them and to rally employees around what you're doing and to raise your perceived value, as it were. Um, so it, it's, it, it's hugely important. Um, again, um, Scott Galloway identifies three kind of levers that you can pull or press to improve your, your business. You can raise the cost of what you do, your goods or your services. You can lower the price to increase profitability. Or the third one is to raise your perceived value. Mm -hmm. So when people talk about brand strategy, that's all about raising your perceived value. Um, and it's more often than not the most efficient way of actually improving, growing your business and, and improving your profitability if you know how to do it well. There is a fourth lever. It's called innovation, just in case someone wants to catch me out. But <laughs> those three are the big ones. Um, I've, I've shared this story before. Uh, I'm a lifelong Apple advocate. And mm. um, before they brought Steve Jobs back and Apple was dead in the water with 3% market share and, and one felt like a fool for being an Apple advocate, there were none in, none available in the stores and you were looked at askance by anyone else. Um, I remember driving into Hollywood and seeing that uh, these huge skyscrapers now had the Think Different campaign. And I had no stock in Apple at the time, but I, I just it made me feel so good inside yeah. that there was yeah. one for the team there, the team I was on, and and I and it associated me with Gandhi and John Lennon and uh, Albert Einstein, and of course I'm a genius and a creative genius because they would have liked Apple and I do too. Yeah. So there must be something to this brand thing. Oh, that, there definitely is. My my goodness. Um... Lee, I look at you and me, and we've kind of got enough gray hair there. You know, I'm totally with you on the Apple thing. You and I, being in the creative industries and being kind of let's let's call us black sheep's a little bit on that creative <laughs> quadrant. Um, yeah. I was with you there, being one of the pioneers with um, Apple when they were first. Can you remember those gray blocks with the little bubble and things like this? And mm -hmm. everyone looked at you incredibly strangely. Um, if you worked on Apple, because mm -hmm. nobody did, there was less than 4% in the first <laughs> two or three years that were using it. Um, and it was mainly the creative industries. Um, I remember working um, at Ogilvy in the, in the early days of my advertising career when um, we won the IBM account and we were um, mandated to use <clears throat> IBM machines instead of Apple. And that almost cost the company its best people. Wow. It, it was that strong an affinity for the Apple brand. Not that it was anti-IBM, who were terrific within their own product, mm -hmm. but the belief and the identifying with the fact that you were different and that you thought differently and this said something about you and you were more creative-minded. 
was so powerfully ingrained. And, and also the systems were superior. They were easier to operate and things like that. So I had an Apple II Plus. That's how far back I, I go with this. Hmm. Um, so, um, you know, brand, brand essentially is a metaphor when you think about it. Um, and, and metaphor is important because it delivers meaning more quickly so that we can grab onto it and move. And so you go through the supermarket, you're not sure about the generic cereal, but when you see corn checks, for instance, well, you know what that'll be in it. And it, it saved you the time in picking it and it might've cost you a dollar more, but, but generally you don't care. So branding is really worth it. Um, whether you're a commercial or a nonprofit enterprise, because uh, again, you want people to understand who you are and what you do quickly in a metaphoric sense. Is that right? Well, absolutely. But it, it's not just it's not just that um, you know doing the shortcuts to associate with what you're what you stand for and what you deliver and what you do for people, although that really helps. Um, you know, I want to I'll rewind back again to say, you know, why is brand strategy important for everybody, whether you're a nonprofit or in the commercial sector? Um, it's about connecting with people and communicating what you stand for and and belonging within that community and what value you bring to them, what it is that you promise to them, your overarching commitment. Um, you know, and I should I didn't really ask answer your earlier question about why is brand strategy important from the analytical side. You and I come automatically from the creative side, but mm -hmm. you know there are really some hard proven facts here, which some of your listeners would like to hear. Um, you know, you 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 know Interbrand really well, um, and they have studies that show conclusively that strong brands outperform the stock market by seventy three percent over a ten year period. So there's some real tangible difference. You know, 60% of consumers prefer to buy brands that they're familiar with. We know this. So um, you can basically, if you're if you're a crafter or defined as a, as a premium or a, a well-known stronger brand, you can typically command premiums of anywhere between 20 and 50% over your rivals. So this really does convert into hard dollars and cash and business. It's not just. It's not just love at all it's it's hard hard business okay and and by the way you're preaching to the converted i i know this this is true and everything you're you're talking yeah about. so so peter you you're a um you're a well-known brand strategist so let's let's ask let's find out when you start to work with a client right why why do clients come to you do they know it's a weak brand i, I mean why do they why do they hire you that's a great question, then. And to be honest, it um, it, it really does vary. Um, most most clients or most relationships that I start with on the consulting side um, start at, at what I would call, and, and I don't mean to insult anyone here, especially not the designers, but on the superficial packaging design. So they think they need a rebrand. They think they need a refresh. Things are a little bit tired. Perhaps somebody's told them their website's looking dated um, or things aren't quite going right um, for them. Um, there, there may be other symptoms that are underlying that, but it typically starts with that. We need a rebrand. What they don't tell you is underneath that is that the real issue is that the relevancy of their product or service is diminishing. They're under competitive pressure. There's a competitive incursion. The dynamics of the category have changed. They're losing energy within the organization. They've lost focus temporarily. 
because the dynamics of the marketplace have changed. So it's much, much bigger strategic implications behind the reasons why they initially come to you as a brand strategist. And so, you know, typically I start by pulling it back and, and, and having very candid conversations with the, the leaders, typically the, the CEO, the chairman and, and the leadership team and doing some investigative discovery work with a few well-chosen questions on, on basically understanding um, where, their, where their potential need is. You know, you, you know, you use the same tools, you know, strategic health checks and things like mm -hmm. that to ask them some straightforward questions which aren't designed to trip anybody up. They're just to basically point out that there's a need and where is that real basic need. So, so that's where I kind of start. And I could tell you a little bit more about that if that's of interest. Well, yeah. So, so if someone is um, either starting or restarting a brand journey, um, right. can, you, can you give us a, a sense of what that's like? Yeah. Um, and again, I don't impose a process on it, but we developed a process or I did with my co-founders at the brand company called Brand Centered Management. And it really tried to simplify this journey, if you like. I now package it into what I call the CBO roadmap. Mm -hmm. And it's basically um, what we call a 4Ds process of discovery, definition, direction, and delivery. And so the process starts with asking the right questions of your stakeholder group, discovery, and finding out what are the current perceptions in you know, top of mind? Um, what do people think and associate with your brand? And typically, you know, if you're a large nonprofit organization or if you're a large commercial organization, you know, you're buried in your business. And, and more often than not, the people who are leading those organizations have been in that situation on that organization for years, sometimes decades. And <clears throat> so you don't think outside of the bubble, you, you're immersed in your world, you're used to the language, the, the conventions of the category, the acronyms you use, you, and, and all of those things, you're blinded to how the outside world actually perceive you at a basic level. And you forget that there are millions and millions of brand impressions every day. And you're fighting for that attention in busy lives where People have got their own other issues. They're not thinking about your organization or your brand 100% of the time. They've got children to drop off. They've got meals to make. They've got their own business to work on. They've got problems here. And so, you know, you've, so I start with the, what do people think mm -hmm. of you? What, when you say, you know, the, the entrepreneur center or whatever one of your clients are, are, are what's the first thing that comes to mind? Um, is it an association of a person or of a product or, or is it often, Nothing at all. And, and so quite often that exercise itself is shocking enough because the number of pauses and ums and errs and you think, oh, gosh, they don't really know much about us at all. So, you know, that top of mind awareness is really quite revealing. But you don't have to dig too much deeper with a few prompts. You can start getting people talking and then they bring those associations and the rich associations rise to the top like cream and you can identify those those are the most telling things because that's what's sticking you know it's not what you think you are it's not what you're telling people it's not even necessarily what you're spending a lot of money on social media campaigns or ad campaigns okay. it's what people are taking out so that starts with the discovery process and it's structured you know you take them through the five streets your customer 
you know, your category, your competitive frame, you're inside the company and the organization and things like that. And then I try and get them to boil down into, you know, what I call the three core truths, um, which again is a tool you're probably familiar mm -hmm. with of identifying, you know, the, the, the category conventions, the category truths, what's everybody doing? What's the cost of entry? You know, what do you need to do to stand out differently? What's the consumer truth? You know, after everything's stripped away, why do they really relate to your brand or your business? What is their need that they're maybe not telling you, um, but you really understand? And then at the, the base of that triangle, where does your brand fit in to marry the two? What's the, what's the reason you exist there? And what's the, the, the promise and the benefit that you deliver that combines something different within the category with the underlying consumer truth? One of the things you referenced a moment ago was, was our gray hair. And, and I, I don't know if this has been your um, discovery, but my discovery is that as I've developed more gray hair, I've begun to realize there are things I actually don't know. And so I don't argue what I don't know with people who may know better. And one of the things that I, you wrote in your book, Dim Sum Strategy, that I enjoy, one of the 15 tape flags that I enjoyed so much was, quote, you're not hiring us to be experts in your field. You're hiring us because we are experts in our field. Why, <laughs> why was that important to single out? Uh, what's... It's interesting you should pick that one out. And um, and I agree with you, by the way, it doesn't matter how old or how much gray hair you've got, you never, ever stop learning. And mm. if you really think you know it all, absolutely not. I just, you know, <laughs> I, I, I coach. You know, I know less you, every day is what I've discovered. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> if you ask my wife, she'll tell you I do know everything, or at least I pretend to know everything. <laughs> but I know for sure, no, I, I, I do not know that, and I learn all the time. Um, but this particular thing was an interesting one, and, and it, it really came out of, I guess, um, sometimes some frustration and uh, um, sometimes not with often pitching for new business. You know, people will come up to you and say, well, or this actually happened to me. I said, well, what experience have you got building, you know, flat package cardboard packaging in the southern states of the US? And I said, um, well, none, you know. <laughs> and, and I said, if you're looking for brand strategists like that, there's maybe half a person in Missouri, you know. <laughs> and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm making light of something to exaggerate the case, but the point is often – you know, people say, well, what do you know about hotels and how much have you, you have you've experienced FemCare? Can you really do that? Um, and what about, uh, um, you know, insurance products? How are you with that? And how many, you know, let's talk where you're at, non-profits have, have you worked with, you know, uh, environmental conservatism. Tell me what you've done in that field before. Whilst I totally acknowledge that it's useful to have some context and experience and know the lay of the land and the language and some of the acronyms and the shortcuts in there. <clears throat> um, and there's a comfort level with that. Most of the dramatic change and dynamic insight that you have, you don't need to be a category expert in that to be able to bring it. In fact, you're more likely to help them if you bring external category insights into bear on their categories. And so, you know, I use the... Um, the analogy of, of going to see a doctor and you know you if you you don't need um when you go in there for the, for your doctor to basically um know exactly what 
profession that you do for them to be able to make an accurate diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It may help to know that you are an outdoor worker, that you're a farmer, you live in fresh air, or you're in the sea, or you're an office worker and you stuck to a desk, up to points to be able to make a diagnosis, but they don't need to know what your profession is. They bring their expertise to bear on making an accurate diagnosis and that prescription and referring you to other specialists if you require explanation of that point. Our agency is named Counterintuity because we we believe that we bring fresh insights and think about things a little differently than the people within the organization. Um, so there's value in in bringing fresh insights and asking new questions, whereas um, if there weren't, everybody would be their own perfect brand strategist, which we know doesn't work. Absolutely right. And yet the other thing as well, you will have experienced, we talked about this, I think, a little bit, that um, I love counterintuitive's name, by the way, and that is so you and so your your brand, and I'm sure you bring huge value to your clients um, in that. The, the thing that you will have experienced as well is that um, change change occurs at the periphery, and, and it's often the outsiders um, who come in from different categories that get thrust into in a new environment that apply wisdom from completely different worlds that would never have been thought of if you were still within your category bubble, as it were. Or sometimes they're naive um, young greenhorns that come in and, and they're not afraid to keep asking the questions that people have been being told no is the answer to for years, but the timing has suddenly changed or the circumstances have changed and now the answer is yes. Um, so and there's a balance to be had because, of course, it does help to bring some kind of comfort and knowledge. Um, and that is part of the discovery process as well. It helps you and I as brand strategists to immerse ourselves in those worlds. Um, it, you know, it, I can have, there's so many examples of this. I used to, to think, you know, we, we will always get labelled for one kind of thing. Um, you know, I, although we've moved on, you know, people relate to me as, as, as a, an ad man, the ex-madman. They relate to that series. They say, oh, my God, you ran BBDO in the Asia Pacific. You worked for, you ran agencies for Ogilvy and DDB, and that's what you did. And, and I used to kind of resist that for a long time and um, thinking, well, yeah, I did that, but I actually kind of set up this specialist brand consulting firm, and that's what I did before that. And then, and then now, you know, I'm doing brand strategy and this, and I said, well, yeah, but when you were running the ad agencies, you know, they'll come back. So you go with the flow. But the reality is, you know, we, especially if you're on the creative side, you may have many skill sets. And I'm not saying that about me. I'm just, I'm saying that about others. Uh, but you do still have to get known for something. And even if you are the most talented creative person, artistic person in the world, you will get associated with one thing. So Picasso is known for, you know, his cubism. <laughs> and that's what we think of. We think of Guernica when we think of Picasso first. We do not jump to his blue period when he had nothing to do with cubism. We don't jump to his sculpture. And we certainly don't jump to his skill as a portrait artist, which is amazing when you see the work that he did as a 15-year-old. So, and he was capable of doing all of that. So, the truth is the best brand strategists and, you know, counterintuitive you know, camp within this, you're actually skillful at doing many, many things and you can work across categories. Um, and, you know, I found I've kept my, my portfolio of work very broad, but what I do, I try and focus down. So 
I start with saying, look, I'm the brand DNA guy. If you really want to understand who you are, what you stand for, why, and how you're going to differentiate yourself in a relevant, credible, differentiating and compelling way, start here with me. Now, that is just the start. It goes way on to that, to driving change throughout the organization, but that's too much for them to swallow in one go. So, you know, DNA guy is good enough for me. Um, <laughs> but I've ended up working for universities, you know, technology companies, political parties, nonprofit organizations, YouTube companies. The principles of building a strong brand DNA apply across the board. So for me, I don't narrow my, my categories, but I narrow my offering. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll be having a further discussion with branding expert Peter Wilkin. We'll talk about brand, of course, and we'll also talk about artificial intelligence, um, some general wisdom, and some other fun stuff. Stick around. Hi, this is Jacqueline with Counterintuity. Being compliant with the Americans with Disability Act on your website is the right thing to do so that everyone can visit and use your website. But did you know that it's also a legal requirement? By ensuring your website meets ADA compliance standards, you make it more accessible to people with disabilities, improving their user experience, and expanding your audience. And by complying with ADA regulations, you can avoid legal issues and protect your organization from expensive lawsuits. Check out the Counterintuitive blog for more on this and other important website compliance topics. Or give us a call. We're always happy to help. We are back with branding expert and guru, Peter Wilkin. Um, Peter, I wanted to ask you, you were talking about uh, brand DNA. There were two stories of yours that I really enjoyed. I'm going to pick one because it made so much sense to me. Um, can you talk to us about Shangri-La, Shangri-La hotels? Um, because it, it just, to me, it exemplifies why brand strategy and branding are so important, that case study. For sure. Um Bear with me while I take you on a, on a, on a little journey on this. this Shangri-La, everyone knows them. They're this amazing Asian-based you know, luxury hotel resort chain. And um, they came to us when we were um, the brand company in Hong Kong because they knew us to be um, expatriates in, in, uh, in China, in Hong Kong. And they were looking to expand their hotel network into North America. And so they kind of wrongly assumed that we would be the right people to help them position their brand as they came into. Funnily enough, it was in Vancouver was one of the first places they were looking at. And they were looking at competing with the Grand Hyatts and uh, <clears throat> things like that. And, and they were thinking, well, uh, do we need to kind of compete with this very masculine, um, bold, uh, you know, granite, hard granite and brass and leather, um, you know, look that it seems to be appealing to the American businessmen? And how do we, you know, do we need to change our offering in this way? And of course, you know, they got completely what they didn't expect, which was with our early discovery work instantly telling them what we instinctively knew, which is that is not you at all. Um, you know, Shangri-La is, is feminine, it's caring, it's about traditional Asian values delivered in a contemporary way. Um, and it's it boiled down to where we ended up with their DNA, which was all around being natural Asian hosts, um, being very feminine, caring, respectful, trustworthy, um, and your, your home away from home. Um, it ended up that the image that they really related to in the end was an Asian Audrey Hepburn. 
Mm. Um, sophisticated, elegant, um, real panache style, um, never aging, enduring, um, but graceful, feminine, um, and 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 caring with that element of mystique. And um, anyway, so that ended up um, driving, and we developed this uh, brandine, which uh, ended up uh, kind of dictating their positioning on a worldwide basis they didn't go down <laughs> the emulating or copying their competitors they stood apart and we said look this is the shangri-la experience and the people who come to the shangri-la want that kind of experience <laughs> and they want to walk in and see your grand chandeliers but done with contemporary asian art they want that um traditional asian values and caring and so give it to them and, and those people that want the opposite let them go don't try and convert them be who you are um but it led on to a whole other series of much long long engagement they were uh, of sorting out their brand family architecture they had um <clears throat> a four-star business hotels in in uh, china who were all trying to jostle to get the aspirational shangri-la name but they actually weren't delivering against the quality and so we again had to remind them that you're defined by the, the, the lowest common denominator, not the highest. And if you start putting Shangri-La names on hotels that are delivering less than that, the first person to travel from the Singapore six-star experience to you know um, you know the Beijing outside you know um, hotel is not going to get them. So we ended up you know creating an, an an already established name called Traders Hotels, which was also very very good but putting lines of delineation between them about what the Shangri-La experience was and what the trader's experience was. So they weren't doing things, and it sounds trite, but they were doing things like um, sharing scales of economy in terms of towels and linen and soaps and things like this. And it was just not, you know, so we said, no, there's a clear line of delineation. When you're a trader, you're here. When you're Shangri-La, you're here, and so on and so forth. It's a long story, but... Um, a good example of being true to yourself and doing the homework to truly understand your DNA. That is, you know, why you exist to serve your customers beyond just making money. What is it that you're giving them? What is it, What are your true beliefs that stand you apart from your competitors? You know, what is your overarching commitment to them, the promise that you make to them, and what benefit do they get from you consist, consistently delivering against it? And then how do you go about doing it, you know, with your culture and the way in which you do it, which is often the differentiating factor. And those elements together with your icons and your attributes create your brand DNA. And mm. that becomes a guiding light or beacon for everything you do and everything you say as an organization. So, you know, our, our brand company was really a change management agency from a brand perspective. That's with hindsight exactly what we were. Um, you, you know, the hotel thing, it, it's so clear to see the difference in branding. Um, I was in London in October on business, and I spent three nights at the St. at St. Ermans, a really nice um, area of town. I mean, the Westminster area, really nice area, right? And it was uh, 600 pounds a night. Wow. Um, oh, yeah. Wow, indeed. Um, and uh, And then when that was over, the meeting I was there for, I went to the place where I would stay, which was I think a Hilton. It was a Hilton, and it was I'm not kidding you uh, twenty thirty steps away, and it was one eighty nine a night and um and the only difference i yeah, the linens, the towels, the way you're greeted, the garb of the doorman, um and there was no breakfast. <laughs> 
<laughs> and they, and um, I'm dating this lovely woman who, who um, upgrades every room we ever stay in. Um, and I say to her, you know, sweetheart, really all of, all I need is a Motel 6 and a jacuzzi that I can sit in outside and have a cigar and some bourbon. I mean, I, and Wi-Fi. I, I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't need all these other things, but you know, she's, uh, she's got a, a jillion Marriott points and, uh, and good for her. And she, she loves Marriott the way I love Apple. So I get it. Um, yeah. so, so Peter, let's talk for a little bit about, um, artificial intelligence. Um, because we, you know, we've talked a little bit about creative tools and ways to fish up identity. And you and I now find ourselves in this place where we are writers and we're writing about meaning and identity and, and drawing metaphors and parallels. And now there are um, algorithms and bots and artificial intelligence theoretically creating things. Um, let's Let's set this up with the first question of, Let's assume that we're going to be using artificial intelligence. Is there a way that people should use it in their branding? It's a great question, and it's definitely not just flavor of the month, it's flavor of the year. And and I do think that, um, you know, last year, 2023, when the introduction of ChatGPT in particular um, will be uh, as pivotal as the introduction of the Internet uh, in terms of the way in which things are done differently. Um, but again, one of my maxims is with age, which I would like to think is a tinge of wisdom, which I know you have, is that nothing is ever as good or as bad as it first seems. Um, <clears throat> there's an awful lot of fear around AI, but there's an awful lot of good around it as well. Um, so I, I, your question to answer it more directly, how can we use it within branding and brand building? Um, it, does, um, it does change the game, I think, but only, again, the way in which you treat it. If you um, treat it as an assistant for you rather than you being a slave to it, um, it really is a very powerful tool. So we were talking earlier about discovery, for instance. So I use... Um, generative AI to be able to help me narrow down categories and insights with specific questions on for brands that I'm researching. And you can dramatically accelerate and enrich your understanding um, through um, through the use of artificial intelligence to, uh, to uh, identify um, what I would call desk and internet research insights within your category. Um, when it comes to Things like um, developing or understanding um, tools and frameworks. And, you know, my Tim Some Strategy book is all about tools and frameworks. You can now, at the touch of a button, find every single brand strategy framework or tool that you want for nothing. If you know how to do a proper prompt on ChatGPT, which pretty much everyone else, everyone does, um, you can find it for nothing. It's there. So what is the perceived value in what you're doing if you're kind of trying to give tools to people? Well, the big value for me is in it's not the framework or the tool. It's actually the substance within and the human interaction of it. So, again, I, I use the, the imaginary story again of, of saying, look, if you, if, you, if you need to have your appendix taken out, you know, you can go to a surgeon 
who is looking at his YouTube video of how to do an appendicectomy, um, who's actually hired in um, and bought in the operating theatre. He's bought all the masks because the equipment is cheap now. He's got an assistant there. In fact, he's he's already done the assistant bot on the steps to follow, um, and he's all ready to go. He's there. Or you can go with a surgeon who's done, you know, 2,000 successful appendicectomies. Um, where would you go? <laughs> and so mm-hmm. <laughs> there is so much that you can and you can't do. Now, you and I can tell the difference between um, you know, humanly interacted, you know, generated copy and, and writing and things like mm-hmm. this that – and oh, business yeah. strategy that but many clients won't and i have to i have to be brutally frank here without upsetting any of, of your um noble listeners i think but the reality is half the clients out there don't appreciate or value great strategy and great creativity anyway i, I mean i'm sorry to say that but that is often the truth and they need to be educated as to why that's important and for them this is just another way of saying, well, we can tick that box and do it even cheaper now. Hey, why, why bother paying any kind of strategist or any creative director or designer to do anything here? I can go to 99designs. No, I can go to Fiverr. I don't even have to pay 500 bucks for this now. Forget about the 5,000. Forget about the 50,000. I can get this for 20 bucks, you know, and the quality, in fact, I can get it for free. And some of it, to be honest, is adequate. But more often than not, it's not. And you will tell the difference. You, you will tell the huge difference. And what it doesn't do is ever bring in that that um, instant level of human connectivity and understanding and prioritization and understanding to what question to ask at the right time and when to interpret um, that AI has still got a lot of catching up to do. Having said that, it can be a very liberating thing as well and taking some of the more mundane um, back-end tasks away. So I hope that answers your question. You use the word understanding. Yeah. And, and uh, AI understands nothing so far. I, I mean, yeah. when, when you talk about human-level understanding, which creativity flows from, and certainly which branding has to come from, yeah. I understand the qualities of your brand. And so here are those qualities that we need to put out that match with people's perception of your brand because you have to give them back what they already believe um, but synthesize better. Um, AI has no facility for doing that. AI gives you – AI um, aggregates and concatenates inputs and then gives you back a variation of the input um, in response to what you asked for. So AI can generate some things, but it certainly has no understanding. Um, And with regard to the technology, I mean, um, I'm not missing my IBM Selectric 2, right? I was delighted to have it when I was a teenager, but um, I'm not missing it. And I love writing on a laptop, and I've been doing that for umpity-ump years. So um, I – and I'll say say something else. There are are people who can – uh, frame a room, right? They can put up studs, they can, they can pound some sheetrock, and that would be me. And then yeah. there are master carpenters. Yeah. And a master carpenter is a quite different thing. And um, AI won't be competing with Mr. Shakespeare or any other level of writers. And if you really want your marketing to stand out, it yeah. had better look and sound human. Now, if you want to attract Mr. Google, 
then you can write to the algorithm, which to me is a completely different set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Then you're writing to the algorithm. You're trying to trick it into generating you as a response in search. Um, but, but the idea of it being creative, um, uh, in, in most ways, we're not there yet and we're not going to be there soon. So you answered your question much, much better than I did. (laughs) I'm going to use your answer again, but no, (laughs) I'm not not joking aside. You're so right. Um, I I think, um, uh, we shouldn't be afraid of it. We should embrace it. And we should never forget to factor in the human elements. And, you know, again, in my book, I talk about vested interest and inertia. And if we really carried AI to its logical conclusion, we would be reinventing some very, very high-end jobs. We're talking brand strategy here, um, but I'm talking things like I've I've been consulting to a group of orthopedic surgeons, incredibly um, well-skilled, professional, dedicated people. Um, but uh, in part of the, the radiologists now, AI um, is more efficient at diagnosing X-rays than the humans are, much more. Um, and so, so much, in fact, that it, it's made their jobs redundant. But do we still have radiologists? We <laughs> absolutely do, because there's a huge vested interest in not discarding a 30-year career. Now, the reality is there ain't going to be many more and uh, any more radiologists Hungary's already stopped training them. Um, so they're, they're, they can retool and refashion into using their skills in a different way that's um, going to be more valuable. But th- those kind of changes will happen. I don't. I don't think anyone can stand athwart technology and say, "Stop here. You you shall go no further." So um, you're either going to you're either going to bend it to your will, or you're going to get run over by it. Yeah. And and I I've generally been a supporter of technology, and I, I think technology is going to clean up a lot of the problems here on planet Earth before we choke ourselves to death. Um, so I, yeah. I'm all for it. Uh, and but I but the idea that you can hand your marketing over to AI is silly. And um, and I, I think for practitioners at the high end in particular, there's going to be lots of opportunity and there will be lots of need because um, Chad, which is my nickname for chat GPT, Chad doesn't know anything about people. Yeah. Um, so, so let me let me ask you a couple more questions in in the fleeting moments we have left. And you and I could talk all day. I, I mean, I and, and we should do so at some yeah, point. I would love um, to. I, I know you've consulted for a number of. You mentioned universities and such, and nonprofits and political parties and 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 such. What, what do you think is the single best thing nonprofit leaders could do right now to improve their marketing? That is a great question. Um, I would I would start by thinking from my experience, and I've worked with nonprofits here as well, and my, my wife runs one and, and which we help develop their strategic work for, and it's an incredibly rewarding area and profession to focus on. Um, but it, it, it tends to, and I go, I know I'm making generalizations, so forgive me if I'm doing that, um, but it, it tends to rely an awful lot on volunteerism as well and not... I mean, the larger ones have huge um, professional organizations behind them, but what they tend to do better than most is community, uh, I found, and I would really play to that strength. More often than not, the um, not the, the, the not-for-profits um, are bound together by a communal shared interest, and that interest is really 
telling, whether or not it's a, a medical disorder or um, a, 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 a passion or an interest for, you know, fresh air and, and environment or, or an understanding of what social community really means, whatever it is, it really binds that group together. And I think nonprofits are, have got many things that they could teach the commercial sector in building communities and doing that on often quite limited budgets. Um, uh, and so I would say really play to that strength because I think the world is moving more that way into truly owning and understanding who it is that you're serving and what, what value you give to them. And more often than not, they don't do enough investment in articulating that so that they're absolutely clear and in the bid to kind of um, often generate funds and get out there and advertise, they cast the net wider necessarily than they should and because they haven't got the confidence of really knowing where that interest group lies. And, and, and often than not, it's stuck within a geographical community when it should be a global one because that interest is is you know mirrored many times over around the world more often than not. So I would think, I would say think bigger play to your strengths, do a little bit more in articulating your your, your positioning around your brand DNA. I would say that because I'm a brand DNA guy. Um, <laughs> but but uh, and then and then go forth and play into your community and build up from that um, because you do that better than so many others do do it. I think that's amazing advice. Um, I grew up in the age of broadcasting and broadcasting is over. And now everything is narrow casting and specializing. And to some degree, that's really what you're talking about. And I agree with you utterly. Uh, I have I, I have tribes of friends, and there are friends who I see regularly. And then there are friends I know only through Twitter, and we belong to the same music tribe or the same book tribe. Yeah. Um, exactly right. And they're, they're, if I wanted to market to them, which I don't, but if I wanted to market to them, that's a market. So, Peter, I want to ask you, um, again, there's so much we could talk about. What what are you working on now? What is next for Peter Wilkin? Yeah, well, well, thanks for asking. I mean, I am I love what I do, like you do love what you do, um, which is having that smorgasbord of being able to have the privilege of being invited inside organizations and helping manage change through their brand and through giving them, you know, really effective brand strategy that 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 drives change. So I still play my fractional CBO or chief brand officer's role for a small, you know, cadre a select cadre of clients um here. And I enjoy that. But um what I'm trying to do now is um I'm on a kind of mission to democratize brand strategy. And I know that sounds all very noble and oh yes, wow, but I really do get huge benefit from it when you know you've impacted somebody's life in a positive way. And I, did, I, had, a, I had a wonderful call this morning from somebody out of the blue I'd never spoken to before who'd read the book and at an influential time in his career and he jumped out of Disney and has developed his own strategic work. And so it's very rewarding doing that. So I have um, I spent the last year and a bit um, reinventing myself again to be able to provide um, scale to what I offer and um, <clears throat> bring the principles of that dim sum strategy book to life, the principles of brand-centered management, and make it affordable and accessible to a much broader community. So I've created what I call the Lighthouse Brand Strategy Academy, 
And at the moment, it exists in the kind of top end form of a, of a CBO masterclass, which is a very comprehensive six module, six lessons in each module, 36 short videos, five to eight minutes each, all instructional and backed up by worksheets. And, and with the intention of helping um, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, brand managers, and aspiring brand strategists to hone their craft and build stronger brands by becoming better brand strategists following this process. And so that exists at the moment. I am in the process of making it m even more affordable and accessible by creating a, um, a community um, on, on Circle at the moment. And that's the hard bit, building that up and getting some critical mass. Um, but inviting people in, you know, just for a few few dollars a month to a community that is driven by a common interest in building stronger brands more effectively. So that, that that's what I'm doing, and I call that the lighthouse. Um, and you you know the the metaphor of lighthouse and brands, but should I spell it out again for listeners? Sure. Of course, I, I grew up near lighthouses, by the way, in Atlantic City. So I'm well versed in lighthouses. Yeah. But yes, please do. So uh, well, I, it's it's a perfect metaphor for for brand building because lighthouses are buildings of purpose, and they're built to last centuries. They're built on foundations of solid rock, which are your, you know, unchanging, unyielding values and beliefs that should never waver. They command significant territories and they shine this kind of bright beacon of hope and light out through the darkness to illuminate. And they send messages that say, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. This is what I believe in. You know, do you believe in what I believe in? And if so, come to the light. And if not, that's all right. We can move away. And so <laughs> people don't know that every lighthouse beacon in the world is different, is unique. It has a different number of beams or color or flashing sequence so that any captain on a ship um, can uh, identify where they are from the lighthouse beacon. And of course, it warns of danger and it lifts the mist and helps clarify decision-making and navigating your path forward. So that's why the lighthouse and um, it kind of works well. And that's what I've done, created this virtual lighthouse, which is a journey which helps people from the bedrock understanding of the basic fundamental essentials of what, what it takes to build strong brands, what a brand is, what makes great brands great, why brands fail and how to avoid them to right up to the top to really mastering what it takes to be a, a chief brand officer that not only defines what it is your brand stands for, but drives that change through your organization. So you're truly um, using branding to shine a beacon of light and hope through the darkness of marketing. Will you be my marketing guy? <laughs> Peter, if, if somebody wants to reach you, what's the best way to reach you? I can provide a link to my website, and if anyone is interested in this Lighthouse program, I'll give you a link into that that uh, CBO Masterclass program. The community is just about to come in the next couple of months, so um, that, that would be great. So I'll send you all of those links. Peter, this has been a load of fun for me. I hope it was fun for you. I hope the listeners have gotten a lot out of this, and for sure... We will put in the show notes and such and in all of our marketing out about this as we try to shine a light ourselves that illuminates Peter Wilkin. So thank you so much. Well, no, thank you so much. And I, I really hope that um, your listeners got some value out of that. Great talking to you again, my friend. We have to honestly talk more <laughs> off, offline on this and, and, and work out a way of working together more.
Indeed. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening. We're glad you came. That's What C Said is produced by Lisa Pham and engineered by Joe Curet. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please like and follow the show. Visit counterintuity.com to sign up and learn more.